0: Thank you for being here tonight and and stopping. I've been speaking to a lot of people lately who who can't seem to stop and um, they are like most people, I would say, when we become a little bit more stressed out, a little excessively busy, excessively worried, traumatized, anything that triggers a sense of, of stress. Uh, what, what would really be a beautiful thing is to let our attention settle into our body, come into the simple reality of the present moment, To for a time, stop looking ahead and stop looking back to really just heal by sitting right in the middle, touching life right where it touches you. Uh, but the tendency is, when we get stressed, is to distract ourselves. And so the, the innocent desire to find relief from the stress the methodology that's used to alleviate it actually causes more. And often the last resort, out of desperation, some people stop. So the fact that you're stopping and no one had to twist your arm already uh, expresses the, or at least to me, uh, shows that you know that, that peace is not to be found through uh, distraction, through toppling forward into the fantasies of what's next and associating your well-being with how things turn out, but it's to be found in the very, you could say, awareness through which you're perceiving in this moment by simply being aware and letting that be more continuous. I was sitting with my daughter Molly last Friday morning and we were talking about peace and I said I want you to notice something I want you to notice that notice what's on your plate we were sitting we were having breakfast I want you to notice what you're seeing with your eyes what you're hearing with your ears, what you're smelling with your nose, what you're tasting with your tongue. And and I want you to notice uh, when you're thinking about something. And I said to her, I said, maybe, I don't know if you've recognized this, but no matter what it is you're noticing no matter what it is that's happening internally or externally i didn't get i didn't elaborate too much no matter what you're noticing the noticing the noticing itself is peaceful the noticing is very quiet the noticing is already at rest the noticing is unchanging, it's always peaceful, doesn't even matter what you're noticing, and I think for the first time ever, she listened, <laughs> and seemed in- interested, <laughs> two, rare, two rare events, because <laughs> I, I, I have to say, I've not been busy being a, a guru, you know, <laughs> with her, it doesn't work, <laughs> But I, I felt very compelled, and she really listened, and she, 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 in that moment, tuned in to the peace of knowing, of noticing. What some call the natural great peace and ease. That is the natural peace and ease of our own mind. Now, how often do we look to the very awareness through which we're perceiving for peace. It's the last resort. It's the last refuge. That's why it's called an open secret. It's right there, but nobody's paying attention to it. No one's recognizing it. Not no one. Of course there are. But this is what, this is what in some way regardless of the situation in your life in the world this peace is available to you and it really depends on where you put your attention of course on if you you will you may sense this peace just naturally begin to dawn when you come and come to a Tuesday night and other people are supporting you to be quiet and and we're not flapping our arms a lot. We're sitting. And it's very easy to attribute it to the place, to to the good company. All those things are helpful. But what's really happening is you are aligning with, you are steady, strengthening, you are getting used to that in you which is always peaceful. And when your attention is in the same, when you are knowing that you're noticing, your body loves it and it starts to relax saying, oh yes, you're finally realizing that the peace and ease that you're searching for is right here and you've left me, the body is saying you've so for so long you've left me in a state of suspended happiness you've left me in a state of frozenness holding out until things quiet down or the world gets better and now you're finally saying no there's no postponement here you're just going to find peace with whatever's happening by just being attentive to the reality of the present moment. Now, I didn't say any of this to Molly, but she did tune into the fact that every moment of noticing, the noticing is not affected by whatever it's noticing. It's always peaceful, always quiet. So, whatever you're noticing right now as you're sitting here, notice that you're noticing. And notice that that noticing is silent. Notice the way your body reacts when you're simply knowing. Just simply noticing. So a little peace, a little peace. A little attention. Peace meeting our body begins a process of harmonizing. Of course, what we the process of harmonizing our mind and body, of coming into a, 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 a bodily state of peace and a mental state of peace, has something to do with um, something to do with meeting our experience. In a non-contentious non-judgmental non-reactive way awareness itself attention itself is non-reactive attention itself is not pushing anything away it's not trying to make anything happen it's just meeting our experience with a quality of, of openness and acceptance of clearly comprehending doing nothing but clearly comprehending what we're experiencing. But what often what we're experiencing when we start our practice is the effect, we're experiencing the residue of how, of what has happened to our minds and bodies from this lack of quiet attention the lack of quiet attention has left our bodies tight, like I said, frozen. And when our body is frozen, our mind thinks a lot. We become disembodied and just spin. And then the more our body tightens up, the more we feel there's some kind of alarm that's registered. And then the mind generates a little story that says, how can I deal with this alarm? And then it gets projected on everything and everyone, our our relationships, our world. And then on top of it, we have some serious problems. Hmm. I mean, just beyond the beyond. Yet, if we want to be able to deal with the what we see is intolerance. What we see is injustice. What we see is everything that is just so hard to bear on the external. How the heck can we do that if we can't even bear our own moment-to-moment experience? If we can't love the very experience that we're having now? How can we, how can we accommodate? How can we... as I I titled the retreat, Love in the Time of Intolerance. How can we have affection and love and kindness when we are so frozen and so reactive to our own experience and running from silence instead of attending to it, instead of being silent, being open? So coming to a... Uh, Tuesday night is one part of learning how to have our attention in the same location as our body. Learn to, learning to, with the support of others, it's such a blessing, to, to uh, get to know again, get used to the, that quality of quiet presence, quiet awareness to feel the effects that that has on your on your mind and your body. But it can't just be Tuesday night, it has to be a regular thing. It has to be something that you remember follows you nearer than your breath everywhere you go, that same quiet. And we have this marvelous opportunity Wherever you go, there you are. You have a mind and body that are are crying out for your attention to at least develop some resilience, some balance, some openness, some kindness to your own experience. So as the Buddha... Recommended that if you could scan the world in all directions, not find anyone more deserving of loving kindness than oneself. First things first. Are you meeting, you know, are you meeting your experience with openness and kindness? Are you meeting your experience with, with a a Uh, Demand that things be different than the way they are internally, your body, your mind? Are you meeting your experience with resistance, aversion? Are you telling yourself a story about your inadequacies, insufficiencies? Is Is your mind stream filled with judgment about you and your life? These are the three poisons, wanting wanting something different to be happening in this moment, pushing away what's happening, and then personalizing it, making everything that's happening into me and mine and my, my identity, instead of regarding this miraculous appearance or manifestation called you. With wonder and tenderness, mercy for how vulnerable we are, how, how much we're affected by circumstances, how constantly everything's changing. We have to be able to learn how to care for ourselves in order to care for the world without losing our balance, without having our caring turn into despair or rage or, or hatred. We have to have some kind of wholeness. I don't think you have to be completely whole before you can be of benefit. We should be of benefit that also helps us be whole. Is by by generating goodwill and, and generosity and service, everything, all the wonderful things that people are doing here in their own ways, and you know, doing as a sangha, but everyone expresses that in their own way. But we have to learn how to cool things down, how to cool ourselves, cool our own um, passions and confusions, when I say passions, I don't mean our passion for our creativity, our caring. I mean the 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 passion that makes us um, so um, so agitated, unbalanced. We we need to to have a settling. We need to have a. Uh, we need to know that quiet. That's this. That's the springboard of our creativity, of our love, of our response. So we do all kinds of practices. We practice insight meditation, which means bringing that silent attention to our moment-to-moment experience. Wherever we go, we try to maintain some kind of continuity. And just keep appreciating, as Dana Fald says in her poem, Walk Slowly. It only takes a reminder to breathe, a moment to be still. And just like that, something inside me settles, softens, makes space for imperfection. The harsh voice of judgment drops to a whisper. And I remember again that life isn't a relay race, that we all cross the finish line. That waking up to life is what we were born for. As many times as I forget to catch myself charging forward without even knowing where I'm going, that many times I can make the choice to stop, to breathe and be and walk slowly into the mystery. So that stopping is just is so accessible and it doesn't matter where you are. It's not doesn't depend on Tuesday night. I think Tuesday night depends on whether you're doing that the rest of your life. That's what uh, kind of enlivens the field of us being together. Is your beautiful practice? I know you're practicing in your own way, but the more we the more we practice, the the, the more peace. The more, and what? Can we offer the world more than our peace, our clarity, and out of that clarity, our compassionate action? That's what what the effect is of stopping. So, the one side of our practice is moment to moment. being peace, being aware of whatever we're doing. The other part is the, is the extension of, of our openness. Um, by the extension meaning extending the, the field of our kind attention, not just to include ourselves, but to include everyone that we, that we connect with. And to actually use our, use our intentionality, use our conceptual mind to incline toward um, remembering that we don't exist separate from each other. Because it's very easy in an individualistic, disembodied world to mostly stay preoccupied with our own internal uh, drama and then be frustrated that we're not, that we're cut off and that we don't know what to do. And then, and then it becomes really um, a kind of self-implosion. So what we do as a way of, port, partly because we're so prone to self-absorption, self-interest, <coughs> partly absorb, and when I say self-interest, I don't mean caring for ourselves properly. I mean caught up in our, in our personality view, in the... The story of I, me, and mine. Little example of I, me, mean and mine. Kind of the ego needing to control, needing to fix, needing to figure out. Notice when your body breathes. Your body breathes 99% of the time all by itself. It just, you know, or most 100% of the time. It body breathes according to its needs. Uh, body breathes. Because it's, you know, the, it, there, we're, we've been, we're incarnated. And notice when you stop and you notice your body breathing, how there's a tendency to then have your identity, a little story called me, start interfering with that experience of the body breathing. And then that little identity in there says, no I, now I have to make sure that I breathe enough. Now I have to breathe a a deeper breath. Now I have to breathe the right way. I have to to keep breathing, otherwise I'll stop breathing. And it becomes then all bound up in in somebody breathing. It becomes egoized. It becomes part of our self-idea. Instead of simply being that environment of peace, empty, nobody at all. Just just this pure knowing, this pure peace and silence knowing the body's experience of its own breath. So you get you can really see how the activity of identity of ego just even with the breath. And then all the other ways that it tries to work things out and figure things out through the day. Figure the world out. Figure the politics out. Figure figure the moral issues. You see how disconnected our identity view can, can become from just a simple unfolding of our life. Now part of our mindfulness practice is just to notice, oh, there's the ego process going Breathing in, breathing out, oh, ego, ego, breathing in, breathing out, you get to see your ego. Um, walking down the street, oh, there's the ego, looking good. feeling afraid, walking down the street, oh, there's the ego feeling deflated. There's the comparing mind, you get to notice that. But when you, op- when you relate to that little ego stuff from that silent awareness, you get to see the insecurity of the ego, how it can never secure anything. If you're relating from that, that little, that little um, agent in there, from that place of trying to figure it out, there's no end to the stress. But if you can notice that little ego guy or girl or whatever, they, you can can start to feel some compassion and kindness toward that that incessant need to become something, to figure it out, to get it right. The, The way our identity view is always in conflict of some sort, trying to get from point A to point B. Thinking somehow... Caught in that story that I've come from the past, I'm moving through this present on my way to the future when I'll be okay. That, um, that just gets us more and more bound. So we practice mindfulness of body and ego, but we also keep, and that, and one of the ways of seeing through the self-illusion, and that, that illusion of our imagined version of ourselves, is to bring that silent presence, that, that peaceful awareness to our experience. And Slowly we see that there really is no, there's really no true identity that exists apart from everything else. That was an illusion. And then we start to see that there's really no other either. That's one way to come into the, the, a different kind of peace of, being at home in the world, touching the world right where it touches us. The other is to ex- keep extending, keep thinning the sense of our separateness, thin the sense of self by extending our loving-kindness. By, by instead of dwelling in the, in the pain of separateness, we just keep inclining toward wishing people well, friendliness. And that's, that also starts to cool things down for us. The reason I'm using this expression of cool things down is because I, I wanted to read tonight a passage from that many of you over the years, if you've sat here, have heard uh, an interview with a fellow, a Tibetan lama, a teacher named Pema Jones, who at the time of this interview was a 13-year-old uh, Tibetan lama or teacher. Uh, and his, um, his main practice, which I will read to you about, is, is a Tibetan practice called tonglen, which is learning how to cool things down. So I'm going to read it to you now. And this is this is the Tibetan version of of breathing in difficulties, breathing out loving kindness. Uh oh, somebody's late. <laughs> anyway, I'm gonna. This takes a few minutes, so please be patient, and then we'll we'll um, end the evening. Again, this is an interview with Pema Jones, a 13-year-old Tibetan Lama who's also known as Rinpoche, which is translated as Precious One. And he was born in India to a Tibetan mother and an American father. And he lived in a Tibetan Buddhist monastery until he was seven years old. He now lives in Wyoming. And he's one of the youngest Buddhist teachers in the United States. The interviewer's name was Chris Helm. It must be hard enough to be a 13-year-old boy in America, not to mention a Tibetan Lama. How do your friends and family treat your connection with the Dharma? It's kind of weird. I have two older brothers, and they tease me about it. They call me Shrimpoche. (laughs) The kids at school don't know I'm a Lama. I would never tell them. Why not? I get dissed enough as it is just being Asian. They call me names like Nip and Gook. It's not like when I was growing up in India. Everyone here in Wyoming is white. I consider it a good day when some goof in a pickup truck doesn't try to run me over. How do you deal with people trying to hurt you? It's pretty safe around here, but we Asians need to stick together. Some of my best friends in our gang are Chinese. It's strange to have Chinese friends when my family has been treated so badly by the Chinese. But this is America. I gotta live here with my own karma. Some skinhead doesn't care whether I'm Tibetan or Chinese. He just wants to stomp my head. You're in a gang? It's just for protection. It's like if a guy threatens one of us, there's nothing we can do on our own. But by getting a bunch of us together, we can defend ourselves. We don't have guns, we don't do drugs, or rob people. Can we talk about something else? Sure. Do you like your students? Yeah, they're all right. They're kind of funny. It's like they say they come for the teachings, but when they get into the interview room, they talk about other stuff. What other stuff? They mainly talk about the opposite sex. Men talk about problems with their wives. Women talk about their husbands and boyfriends. I don't get it. It's like I have little enough time as it is with school and little league and my chores and they want me to be a shrink or something, and I'm only 13. I mean, I've got girlfriends and all, but what do I know about relationships? So what do you tell them? I called my dad, I talked to my dad about it, and he gave me a stack of business cards from one of his friends, a psychologist. I just hand my students one of the cards when they start talking about relationships. I put my name on the back of the card, and whenever my dad's friend gets a new client, he takes me and my brother and sister to Dairy Queen. It's cool. (laughs) Buddhism is no big deal. It's like being a doctor. They're suffering, you diagnose it, give someone a prescription, and hope they go to the drugstore. No one in America wants to go to the store, though. They all want to be pharmacists and sit around discussing different types of medicine. What's with that? Take some medicine and come back next week. I mean, don't get me wrong, Buddhism is choice. So you're fully qualified to teach? Sure. I mainly teach Tong Lin. Tong Lin, giving and receiving. It's what I think works best at times when people are trying to kill you or too many changes are happening at once, which seems to be the case in this country. You're basically a giant filter, like on an air conditioner. You suck in the bad air and breathe out the pure air. I see myself like an air conditioning repair dude. I teach people how to filter and cool things down. So if you can cool things down, why do you need to be in a gang? It's a samsara and nirvana thing. If some guy disses me, I can just tell myself that he really doesn't exist separate from me. You know, it's like he's dissing himself. That works fine, but what happens when he stops talking and starts beating on me? You need to be able to take care of yourself so you don't get killed. We live in samsara, that means endless wandering, the cycles of birth and death. We live in samsara, and spacing out about nirvana doesn't help anyone. Don't you see any contradictions in that? The Dalai Lama, for example, constantly teaches nonviolence, despite having been terribly oppressed all his life. Ha, huh. oh yeah, right. The Dalai Lama is an awesome old dude and a killer teacher. But he's got like a dozen bodyguards around him when he's traveling. What do you think would happen if some butthead pulls a gun on his holiness? Do you think those dozen bodyguards will practice nonviolence or busts, bust some karate move on him? No way, man. A bodyguard sees this dweeb with a gun, and he's going to pop a cap in his ass. <laughs> so, so partly I read that for the, for the air conditioner repair dude. You know, our version of it is metta, is, you know, breathing in the truth of what we're experiencing, breathing out goodwill wishing ourselves wishing others and extending ourselves to where we when we meet others we in pain we feel that that joining that that quivering of our heart in compassion when we meet joy we join with others in their joy in the altruistic joy when we we just keep extending until there's no one that's left out of our heart and with a wide boundless heart we feel this sense of, yes, I can, I, I have room for everyone. And we feel so, this depth of equanimity. That is really a matter of what we do, whether we filter things, cool things down, or whether we just keep building up our ill will and reactivity. And I know everybody here wants to be at peace, but it it's really depends on what kind of seed you're planting. Every moment is an is a open field of creative possibility. What are you going to, what seed will you plant? A little breathing in the, the difficulties of life, breathing out the, the purity and the love, or breathing in the difficulties and then spinning out all day about how terrible it is. Touching into the beauty of the living present that's the peace of the living present, even in the midst of intense difficulty, or running around like a, a chicken with their head cut off in a state of confusion, in a state of ill will, or getting so depressed that, we, that we're not able to, to, um, to plant that seed for everyone of peace. Um, Anyway, that's my invitation to um, both be realistic about the world as this passage so beautifully expresses. Life is messy, but what we do with our minds and bodies every moment can really determine our sense of well-being and the well-being of others. Your little peace matters. Put all the pieces together, we get a lot of peace. Anyway, thanks for listening. May your mindfulness practice be unbroken, continuous. May you have every moment that you realize that you have been absent-minded, let it be the cause of, of appreciation that you're now awake and forgiveness for whatever delusion you had fallen under. And may all the moments that you can remember um, be a a cause of of friendliness and goodwill. And may our practice tonight and every night and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all. May all beings find peace or know that peace is your natural state.